you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 44 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you so much for praying for me and for my family members and for my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Well, today we begin episode 44, which is part three of my interview with BDK of Omega Frequency on 21st century Phariseeism. This final chapter exposes how pride and Machiavellianism have almost been normalized in the modern American church and what church leaders can do to help remedy this tragic trend in Christendom. And if you want to find out more about BDK, please go check out his website, omegafrequency.com. And if you want to find out more about me and my ministries, uh, please check out philsbaker.com. And you can find everything there from my book to my podcast to music to my blog all that stuff, you can email me through that as well. So please check that out. I want to encourage y'all to uh, go over to iTunes or CD Baby or Amazon and um, and go check out my new EP, the Shadows EP. It's available per, for purchase there. Or you can uh, stream it on Spotify, however you choose to listen to it. Go check it out. Uh, I really would appreciate your help on that. And if it's uh, something that you like, please please leave a rating on iTunes for me. That'd be awesome. Well, uh, I want to tell you all about a podcast I really love called The Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker. She's got an interview coming up with another missionary from Mozambique, a girl named Allie. And uh, man, her testimony of forgiveness uh, after her father's brutal murder on a Christmas Eve is just incredible. It's just incredible. So y'all want to be on the lookout for that. That's Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker. Again, uh, I wrote a book in 2016 called New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. And you can find it on my episode or you can go directly to Amazon and uh, purchase it there. You can either get a paperback or a Kindle version. And if it's a blessing to you, please consider leaving a rating and review there. If you want to contact me, my email is email philsbaker at gmail.com. If you want to find out more about Justin Falls, Fourth Watch Radio Network, please go and visit him on his website, fourthwatchradio.com, and check out all the awesome stuff he's got going on there. They've got a great project in the works, and you're not going to want to miss that. Finally, the uh, anti-Nicene quotes that I use generally can be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, and you can purchase your copy for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into episode 44, 21st Century Phariseeism with BDK, part three.
So in the last segment, uh, you were referencing that parable of the tax collector and the uh, the uh, Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. Uh, and this uh, Pharisee was like so proud of himself <laughs> for for all the good things that he'd done and how holy he was. Um, but the Pharisee or the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes toward heaven. Right? He's just like God, have mercy on me. And we were talking about you were talking about like this showy outward worship. And um, as we we kind of use that to springboard into our topic of the traditions of institutional Christianity, um, yeah, I, I want to remind people again of that quote um, from my buddy earlier on that things have come to be less about the mission of the church, which is teaching people how to obey and follow Jesus to become like him in the world. Things have become less about the mission of the church and more about the maintenance of the institution. And so this showy outward worship, you know, glitz, glamour, um, like a rock concert atmosphere, hyper-produced, you know, all that stuff as, is seen as like almost a necessary thing, like a commandment. We have to have this so that we can bring in more people, so that more people can hear the gospel. You know, that's how it's justified. So, you know, wh- what are your thoughts, just real general, like, what are your thoughts on the traditions of institutional Christianity and how they relate with uh, the true mission of the church, you know, how they stand in the way, and maybe some things that we can do to help, in addition to like we were talking about prayer, some things that we can do to help bring the, back the church to the heart of God and to the heart of its mission. Well, before we dive into that, like, man, these shows are kind of dangerous because we're going to speak a lot of unfiltered truth. And we're speaking it to a wide variety of people that listen to these kinds of episodes and um, like you said before, like I've said before, we've both been pastors at, at, at given moments in our ministry. And this form of godliness, but denying the real power, this maintenance of a system over the mission of the church. Before I answer that, can I speak to pastors for a moment Go, that may man. be listening? Do it. Because... I'm not trying to drag any pastors under the bus, but if there's any pastors listening, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about pride, which was a major problem with the Pharisees. Pride is the killer of pastors. And because of pride and the blind spots that pride has, within the heart of a minister. And it's not like ministers are evil Machiavellian characters wringing their hands and going, ha ha ha, I'm so prideful. I'm snidely whiplash tuning the mustache up. That's not what the pride comes from. Pride comes from this good desire 
to do something of worth within the kingdom of God. It comes a lot of times from that moment of, I am saved, I want to give my life to Christ, and I want to win as many souls as possible to Christ. I want to make disciples. I want my life. I want to serve God harder than I serve the devil. And because there is this pride, there exists two massive heresies within the church today. And speaking as a former pastor, like I said, our weakest blind spot is the need for validation that our work is not in vain. Let me say that again. Hmm. Our most weakest blind spot is the need for validation that our work is not in vain. And the moment we measure that success rate in anything other than faithfully preaching and teaching the sheep, the whole counsel of God, winning souls and training disciples to follow Christ, we stray because being a pastor is a hard calling. The burnout rate is insane for pastors. If you're a pastor, you know exactly what I mean. Because a lot of times you have to do almost everything yourself. And you're just so grateful to get anyone to stand beside you that you overlook who you choose to stand beside you. Hmm. Because you have to know, you have to believe that you're making a difference. And when you measure the success by the size of the buildings and how many campuses you have and how many people attend, then you turn to formulas and systems that compromise the mission you were called to and you fall into the seeker-sensitive movement. But the other heresy is just as bad. You can have pride for a prestigious, prominent place or title within the body of Christ. And this is how a lot of churches get co-opted by movements like the New Apostolic Reformation. You want to be called a prophet or an apostle. You want to have your ministry validated by others as being of something of importance. And to get those titles, you have to overlook questionable teachings, theology, and allow signs that make you wonder because that's part of the movement. And so we as pastors have to guard our hearts against that blind spot because that's the thing that Satan is going to attack us with the hardest. We have to remain humble and broken and in prayer before God. And we have to fast and we have to fast more than any other ministry thing we do. I'm convinced of this. Fasting has to become such an important thing for people that are in leadership or are pastors of a church because you're denying your flesh. You're, you're literally choking pride. You have to have Christ invite you into his presence and you have to go in there at his beckoning and you have to lay yourself before his feet and you have to lavish your worship upon him. And you have to understand that whether there's one person or a million people in your church, your calling is to honor Christ and to follow the one that's inside you just as you would expect everyone else to do. Faithful preaching, teaching, and discipleship has to be enough. It has to be the motive. The Great Commission has to become the commission again. And if it's not, then we are wasting time. We're playing games with the holy things of God. And what's really sad is that all these programs, all these wants for prestige and titles and everything else, God would pour out his power in our churches he desires it more than we desire it. 
but he just has to find a church that's willing to pursue him as he is calling us to do. And when we make our mission right again, and when we start bringing prayer back into our churches and we start bringing holiness back into our churches and we start bringing the truth of God's word back into the churches and we make making disciples and training believers into strong soldiers again, we will see the power of God and we need the power of God. And God's resources, all of heaven's resources stand at our disposal. You know what made the early church so powerful was they were just a a church that said, you know what, we'll give up everything we have to see this gospel play out. We'll give up our food if someone else is hungry. We'll give up our money if someone else is poor. We won't overcome darkness by more darkness. We won't overcome Satan by more programs. We won't overcome war with more war and hate. We'll overcome it by love. Light will overcome darkness. We just want to meet God. He's calling us into his presence and we just want to run into that presence. We want to put on that wedding dress and just run down the aisle and be the bride. And God was saying, that's all I ever wanted. These people to come to me. Now I'll share everything that I have with you because you've given everything else up for everyone. And if we make that our heart cry and our mission cry, God will move again. I know he will. I believe he will. But will we pay that price to become the foolish things of the world that confound the wise? I think one way that we could like encapsulate what you said is that like having a legacy that is praised by men has been valued above humility before God. Amen. And that's something that has to be confessed publicly, in my opinion, by the pastors in order for revival to take place, in order for God's spirit to have his way. But authenticity is not as highly valued as legacy. And so like protecting legacy means a, a refusal to be authentic before our, before our people. And I know that's a really hard thing, a really hard line for pastors to walk. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but I, I'm sure that you've been there, right? Yeah. It's like, how much do I share with my people? You know, like, do I, do I share struggles that I'm having right now or do I share struggles I had 18 years ago as my sermon analogy? You know what I mean? Yeah. Or do I share other people's struggles instead of my own? How real, how authentic am I going to be? And the fear is, like I said, if, if I'm too authentic, then my legacy will be tarnished, you know? And I mean, I get that. I get that. But then it comes back to what do we really want? Do we really want the things that we say we want? Or are we saying those things because they're the right, you know, quote unquote, the right thing to say? Well, you have to as a pastor, as a leader, if you want people to follow you, then you have to be willing to lead in that authenticity. I mean, And what you're really doing is you're following Jesus, right? Right. I mean, Jesus, he left everything to be born in human skin, flesh. And he didn't do, 
everything that Jesus requires us to do, he did first. Right. Even the temptation, he gets filled with the spirit. The first thing he does is he's led into the wilderness to be tempted. He was tempted in all points as we are. Even the mission that he gives us to make disciples and everything, he uses, he gives us the same Holy Spirit that was given him to do miracles and to do all these signs and wonders and to do the things of God. He left us a pattern to follow. We have to build after that pattern. And as leaders, if we are not willing to lead as Jesus led, then people will not follow. And so you have to, like you said, those sort of confessions have to come from the leadership. As a matter of fact, that's usually what sparks revival in a church. It's when the pastor gets up and says, I've offended God. Hmm. And we're not going to do anything else until this offense is dealt with. And what a great example that sets because the people out in the pure like, well, geez, if our pastor, who's probably knows more about God in the Bible than all of us put together, is falling down on his face right now in tears and he's being transparent and he's saying, I've, I've missed the mark, I've sinned, I've made these programs, I've made these titles more important than the mission of the church. Imagine what that will do to the people sitting out in the pews, Right. They're going to be wounded even greater because they're going to see their need for Jesus and his healing balm of Gilead also. Yeah, wounded in a positive way. Right. Because that's, you know, God doesn't wound to kill. God always wounds so that he can pour in the balm of Gilead. I mean, that's the great thing about God. Like, yeah, it may seem like he disciplines us, but those whom he loves, he chastises. Those whom he cherishes, he disciplines. And there's always that sweet, sweet balm of Gilead to be held, to be had if we are honest with our shortcomings and our woundings and our failings. And we need to see this transparency from within the church more often than not. And it's something that we don't see because we don't not only see our need for it, like you said before, we want to protect our legacy, but we also want to protect the model that we've built. We've also want to protect the system that we've put into place. And we say we do it for the benefit of our audience and their dignity, but in reality, God wants us to get a little undignified every once in a while. He wants us to weep between the porch and the altar over things that offend him. Because if we expect truly the sinner to come and to find that balm of Gilead, then we must be whole. We must have been dealt with. We must first lay down those things that hinder the move of God in our lives so that we have a chance of reaching people who desperately need to hear the truth. The truth must be present in us first. Hmm. I think I want to like close up with this, this idea that the ends justify the means. Because mm. that's a tradition, you know, and that's been a tradition in the church for a long time, long, long time. And it's been expressed in so many ways. How, how do you feel that that philosophy is damaging to the church uh, in a modern context? And what do you think is the solution for that? Well, if you look at it in the ancient context first, what you're referring to is this idea that the Pharisees 
had that the ends did justify the means. I mean, if you read the Gospels, man, these, they lied, they bared false witness, Hmm. they bribed, they plotted, they plotted murder, they threatened people with excommunication that that were healed by Jesus. It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And if you look at that, they were saying, well, we either protect the system we have or we go back to the Maccabee period, right? Mm. It's better that we do all these things. They may be questionable, but if the results are good, then, man, there must be some good in it. And we see this today. And I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but we see this in buildings, right? that we have to have this beautiful building. And so if we have to bring in a seeker sensitive gospel, or if we have to remove the cross from the wall, or if we have to take away the hymnals and put in led screens, if we have to quote Jay Z in the youth ministries, if we have to, if we have to do all these things, right, we have to do all these things because it brings people in. And if it brings people in, then maybe just maybe they'll hear a gospel that doesn't necessarily cause them discomfort. It doesn't offend them. It's a gospel of accommodation. Then we will gain these converts, these followers, and we use spurious means that the church has never used before to win these people. The only problem with that is, is however you win a person is how you have to keep a person. Let me say that again. However you win somebody to Jesus in a church setting is how you're going to have to keep that person. Hmm. There's going to be a lot of pastors who, and this this breaks my heart, man, because I would have been one of these. If, If I would have continued down the path that I was continuing down, I struggled against it. Like, should I have a storefront or should I invest all this money into building a nice sanctuary? Um, there were all these conflicts within my denomination about how we did church. There's going to be a lot of pastors who are going to hear the words of the scripture that say, woe unto you. I've appointed you as a watchman on a wall to, to tell people their sins, to show them their shortcomings, to show them their need for Christ. I have put you there to preach the standard of Christ And instead, you've offended people into hell. Hmm. You've built a sanctuary that's air-conditioned for the tares while the sheep have starved. That's going to be a sobering moment for a lot of people. And it's a tragic thing. It's a tragedy, this mixture of the world and the things of God. But we have to come out from this worldly system in all of these arenas, because our mission is to demonstrate the kingdom of God, correct? Mm -hmm. To demonstrate the gospel. And how we demonstrate the gospel is how people are going to see the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We can't muddy this image. The end doesn't justify the means because we will be held accountable We will all have to stand before this judgment seat of Christ and all of our works are going to be passed through that fire. 
wood, hay, stubble, stone, all of it. And only those things that have been done truly in the name of Christ are going to stand. All of these programs and all of these things that are man-made are going to burn anyways. So let's get back to the gospel, man. Let's not have this attitude that the end justifies the means, that we can engage in the same things the world engages in and just slap a Christian bumper sticker on it. We owe people better than that. We owe God better than that. And we owe ourselves better than that, Phil. Yeah, man, I mean, that, it makes me think about, about this, uh, this sermon that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. gave. Um, it's called A Christmas Sermon on Peace. And in it, he says this. He goes, the leaders of the world today talk eloquently about peace. Every time we drop our bombs in North Vietnam, President Johnson talks eloquently about peace. What is the problem? They are talking about peace as a distant goal, as an end that we seek. But one day we must come to see that peace is not merely a distant goal we seek, but that it is a means by which we must arrive at that goal. We must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. All of this is saying that, in the final analysis, means and ends must cohere because the end is pre-existent in the means. Mm. And Yeah, mind-blowing right there, right? The yeah. end is pre-existent in the means, and ultimately destructive means cannot bring about constructive ends. So, like, my goodness, that dude was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> First of yeah, all. Yeah, was. Yeah. And uh, it, it's kind of analysis, an, analogous to what we're talking about here today, because it's like the end is like seeing the kingdom of God come on earth like in our church as it is in heaven, you know, like seeing the kingdom of God, growing the kingdom of God. But you can't grow the kingdom of God through the tools of Satan's kingdom, <laughs> you know? And you can't even grow the kingdom of God unless you know what the kingdom of God looks like. Right. And you investigate the early history of the church to find out what the church is supposed to look like, what a healthy, vibrant church is supposed to be. Right. And so, like, that the ends is pre-existent in the means, that's incredible because he's saying, like, what means are you using? Are you using worldly means, like business models to grow the kingdom, worldly business models to grow the kingdom of God? You're not going to end up with the kingdom of God. You're going to end up with worldly business. The end is pre-existent in the means. So if we want to see God's kingdom grow, we have to first individually assess how are we doing individually? Is God's kingdom alive in us? Or are we suppressing the truth? And then, then we bring that to our, our church. If we have been suppressing the truth, if we have been 
not allowing the kingdom of God to grow in us, if we have been valuing legacy over humility, we bring that to the church. Because if we want our church to be repentant, we got to model that too. Yeah, but we, 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 we think we're preaching to others, but like in reality, there, this is a lot home to us too, man. Yeah. You know, and we have to be part of the solution or we're going to be part of that problem. And we have to do this fearless moral inventory of the way that we do things. Yeah. And we have to bring that before God and we have to weigh that in prayer. And we have to be willing to understand that we don't understand it all. But we're lucky enough to have a guidebook, the Bible, that'll teach us how to do the things we have to do. Right. And we can just start listening to that voice inside of us of the Holy Spirit who wants to lead us. And the simplest thing to do is then just to follow. Even if that means giving up politics, even if that means giving up war, even if that means giving up violence, even if that means giving up positions of power and legacy. Christ isn't interested in any of that. He's just interested in people and in in just plain moldable clay vessels that he can put the fire in and the oil in so that there can be a light, there can be a witness in this world once again for Jesus to replicate his life here on earth so that many people who need the loosing of oppression, that need the good deeds that we need to do, can be done. And that is why we must do it at any cost that's in the parameters of the Bible. Because that cost is really simple. The cost that he... You know, the ends justify the means. It's like we can do it no matter what the cost. There is a cost. That cost is to do what Jesus did, to be part of that death, burial, and resurrection, to humble ourselves, to pray, to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us, to give the Holy Spirit his rightful place back in our church, and to understand that we are nothing without him. That's the cost. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, you have to count that cost. And we need to start not only counting that cost for ourselves, but we need to also let people know there is a price to be paid and a cost to be paid. And that before you do the bow the head, close the eyes, raise the hand, or fill out the card, that cost must be preached to people so that they know what they're getting into because there are dark days coming. And that's the other part of this, Phil. If we think that we're living in a crazy time now, a crazier time is coming. I can't wait to hear that episode you do with the Maccabeans and how you compare that to what's coming in the tribulation. If we don't start not only counting the cost for ourselves and preaching the cost to others and training and making disciples who are strong soldiers of Christ again, then we are going to be severely lost when the tribulation hits. And we are going to suffer much lost when the storm comes and the winds blow and the rains come. Absolutely. But if you've already lost all everything, then you can't lose anything more. Amen. You know, if you've already been crucified with Christ, what can they take? What can they take? 
what can be mm-hmm. what can be taken from you. So I, like, I, yeah, I wanna I wanna end this podcast with Philippians two because the path to a godly legacy is through humility and it's demonstrated in in Jesus have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself he took the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a legacy Jesus left us. But he has the greatest legacy of all. Because no one emptied themselves like Jesus has. No one humbled themselves like Jesus has. No one gave up what Jesus gave up. And yet, if we surrender ourselves to him, he will put his spirit into us and transform us slowly, you know, from glory to glory into his image. And that's incredible. And so I want to encourage everyone out there to fix your eyes on Jesus. Whether you're not a Christian yet or you are a Christian, whether you're in you know, an institutionalized church or whether you've been burned by the church, fix your eyes on Jesus. Turn to Him. Love Him. Let Him wrap you up in His arms. Come to Him in authenticity Come to him in humility. He already knows there's no such thing as a secret with God. Secrets don't exist. And yet the one who knows you best loves you most. Mm. Got any last words, BDK? I don't think I could hold the torch to everything you just said, man. So I'm just going to say amen. Well, will you pray for us? Yeah. All right. Father, we love you because you first loved us. Father, help us to empty ourselves as Christ emptied himself to the point where we don't care about prestige, money, legacy, streets of gold, title, anything like that. Father, help us not to be Pharisees where we value the traditions of men over the living, powerful, two-edged sword called the word of God. Let that two-edged sword be a powerful weapon in our hands and in our mouths again in this coming hour. Jesus, we need you. We need you more than the air we breathe, more than the plans we make. Jesus, reveal to us the truth. You are the truth. We love you. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for the resurrection. And thank you for the baptism in the Holy Ghost. 
Now let us honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lies flowing like the time flies, but they're catching on, yeah. The day's coming like a freight train. Don't you wait until the flames blaze. Are you banking on a safe space with hate flowing strong, yeah? It won't be long. Your great deception's coming our way. How you gonna hold me? They all fall away. And the questions answered every new day. See it when you choose. Do you love the truth? Till it looks right and keep talking of the good life Don't you bother with the hurt lives Cause they bring alarms, yeah But it won't be long Your great deception's coming our way How you gonna hold when they all fall away And the questions answer